What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Interior, Jennings Lang's office, day. Mr. Lang is a senior executive agent with a four-window office at the Beverly Hills headquarters of Music Corporation of America. His suite is several pegs above the glass cubicles of the middle echelon. There's lots of leather and a large desk behind which sits Mr. Lang. He is a tall, handsome man in his middle 30s, a mover and a shaker in the office, and a family man at home. The latter is attested to by a framed photograph showing two boys aged 8 and 10 in school uniforms. Jay Cantor, one of Lang's junior executives, walks in. Lang looks up at him. Jay, uh, there's a certain key floating around the office to an apartment. And do you know who that apartment belongs to? Who? Loyal, cooperative, resourceful Jay Cantor. Oh. You going to deny it? No, sir, I'm not going to deny it. You have no idea what I've been through with the neighbors and the landlady and the liquor and the key. Uh, How do you work it with the key? Well, usually I slip it to them in the office. He reaches into his coat pocket, fishes the key to his apartment. He holds it up. That's good thinking, Cantor. Next month, there's going to be a shift in personnel around here. And as far as I'm concerned, you're executive material. I am? No. Put down the key. Put down the address. Jay lays the key on the desk, uncaps a fountain pen, and starts writing on a notepad. It's on the second floor. My name is not on the door. It just says 2A. He finishes writing the address and shoves the pad over to Lang. Now remember, Cantor, this is going to be our little secret. Yes, of course. You know how people talk. Oh, you don't have to worry. Not that I have anything to hide. Oh, no, sir. Certainly not. Lang and Cantor all but wink at one another as we fade out. Welcome back to Love is a Crime. What you just heard is our version of a scene from Billy Wilder's classic 1960 film, The Apartment, recast to parallel real-life events. Jay Cantor, a junior executive at the Hollywood agency MCA, really did give a co-worker with seniority the key to his apartment so that the co-worker could use the apartment to have an affair in. The senior co-worker was Jennings Lang, Joan Bennett's agent, who Walter Wanger would shoot in the MCA parking lot in December 1951. The junior executive was Jay Cantor, who Vanessa interviewed in 2018. I think that's where Billy Wilder got the idea of the movie with Jack Lemmon called The Apartment. He never told me, but it was quite obvious. In the apartment, Jack Lemon's office underling slash leaseholder falls in love with Shirley MacLaine's elevator operator, who happens to be the mistress of the boss who borrowed the apartment for their rendezvous. The ultimate message of the movie is that, in mid-century America, one had to choose. You could have money, power, corporate advancement, or you could have a soul. When it was released in 1960, it deeply resonated with the public and the industry. 
It won the Best Picture Oscar, and it arguably helped to kick off the wave of self-reflexive films about American angst that would really blossom in the late 1960s and early 1970s, with movies like The Graduate and Easy Rider. The apartment in The Apartment is a symbol of the moral rot of corporate America, and the affair that happens there is totally loveless. That wasn't necessarily the case with the affair that inspired the movie. Today on Love is a Crime, we'll talk to one of Jennings Lang's sons, and others who knew Jennings, about the secret rendezvous that made Jay Cantor's apartment notorious. But also, in order to understand who Jennings Lang was, we need to understand MCA, the agency he worked for, which was in the process of remaking Hollywood at the exact moment that Jennings got involved with Joan Bennett. This is the story of how the side business of a Chicago ophthalmologist became one of the most powerful corporations in mid-century Hollywood and America, of how Jennings Lang broke that corporation's norms by sleeping with one of his clients, and how, after taking a bullet for that liaison, Lang not only survived, but thrived. This is Love is a Crime. I'm Vanessa Hope. And I'm Karina Longworth. Music Corporation of America was started in 1924 in Chicago by Jules Stein, an eye doctor who had put himself through medical school by moonlighting as a booker of jazz bands and singers for clubs and dance halls. Stein was one of the first agents to send musicians on tour. His clients played one-night stands in cities across the Midwest. Business boomed through the jazz age and into the Depression, when those who still had any money to spend prioritized escapism. And MCA steadily expanded. Stein moved out to Los Angeles in the late 1930s, with the idea of expanding beyond bands and one-night stands into other sectors of the entertainment industry. The flashpoint came in 1945, when MCA struck a deal to buy out Leland Hayward, then the biggest agent in Hollywood, so that Hayward could leave his agency and become a producer. In buying Hayward's business, MCA acquired the rights to manage the careers of a bunch of big stars, including Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, and Katharine Hepburn. They'd also represent a number of performers who would become the biggest stars in Hollywood after the war, such as Gene Kelly, Marlon Brando, and Joan Bennett. Stein's most important hire would turn out to be Lou Wasserman, a future mega-agent who started out as an usher in Cleveland. In 1946, Jules Stein, who owned MCA in its entirety, stepped back from the day-to-day -day business and made Wasserman CEO. Wasserman and agent Taft Schreiber made a fateful, mutually beneficial pact with Ronald Reagan, then an unremarkable actor, Reagan got a deferment from war service thanks to a million-dollar deal MCA made for him at Warner Brothers. In return, when Reagan was elected president of the Screen Actors Guild, 
In defiance of norms preventing conflict of interest, Reagan granted his agency a waiver so that they could stay in the business of representing clients while also launching their own production company. This allowed MCA and their clients, including Reagan, to essentially own the just-emerging new medium of television. This was a huge deal. And it would have major implications for Joan Bennett and Walter Wanger's careers and their lives. In 1949, Wasserman hired Jennings Lang. A former lawyer from an Orthodox Jewish New York family, Lang had first come out to Los Angeles in the late 1930s with designs on becoming a talent agent. Well, he'd come here in 1939 with $50 in his pocket looking for a job as an agent. This is Rocky Lang, son of Jennings Lang. Rocky is a film producer and director and the author of several books about the era of Hollywood in which his father was dominant. I think what motivated my dad to get in the business was the, the, the allure of Hollywood. Uh, it was a glamorous world. He was an assistant director in college and then a director in college and went to law school and got his law degree and decided, you know, he was going to take his law degree and come to Los Angeles and try to get into the business of making films. And the agency opportunity opened up for him. I actually found a letter from 1939 when he was 24 years old. And he applied applying for his first job as an agent. And I, I could actually see his state of mind as a young man in Hollywood ahead of him. Rocky Lang is the product of Jennings Lang's second marriage. Lang's first wife, Pamela Lang, was the mother of Rocky's two half-brothers. Pam had married Jennings near the beginning of his agenting career, and by the time Jennings joined MCA in 1949, his lifestyle had changed. My dad was a young guy, and he was at a different time, and he was a mover and a shaker, and he was attractive, and he had a lot of women interested in him. Jennings was a ladies' man and a womanizer, and Lou Wasserman, who hired him at MCA, knew of his charms and abilities with wooing women, and he wanted Jennings to steal stars from other agencies and attract clients and keep them. One person who might have wished that Jennings had spent less time attracting clients was his wife, Pam. What I know about Pam is that she was a very nice woman, loved her children, loved my dad, and it didn't work out. And from what everything that I know had become a business marriage, it was not uh, that happy a marriage. My dad was running fast in the business, doing very well. And by the time that my brothers were born and everything else, he was moving pretty fast. He had a lot of clients. He was making his way up the ladder. I don't think that he probably had much time for her. I know from what my brothers say, he was not the father to them as he was to me because he was very present in my life. And he was a young man trying to make his way. I think ultimately, uh, you know, making money and being successful and becoming powerful was, was attractive to him. I think he liked that. He was a very good-looking man, very slick, smart. He got it. He knew the business. This is Michael Greskoff, an agent who went on to produce films like Young Frankenstein and My Favorite Year. And business out here is like a game. You know, you get up in the morning and you see, as a producer or as an agent, you try to put pieces together. The first phone call could be a punch in the stomach or a karate chop on your neck. And one thing leads to another, and hopefully there's a deal. <laughs> 
Jennings Lang was one member of the new crew of up-and-coming MCA agents. Another was Jay Cantor. When he first arrived in Los Angeles, Jay had little sense of how the entertainment industry worked. But then he rented an apartment near the offices of MCA. And when he'd walk by the agency's office building, what he could see from the street sparked his interest. And he'd see these figures at night, like walking back and forth in the, in the windows. And he was like, what, you know, what is going on in this place? These men walking back and forth. And it was late at night. He didn't know what it was. And so he one day walked in and he says, you know, what is this place? They said, oh, this is an agency. And the first thing he thought was, oh, this is like a secret agency or something like that. I'm really interested in this. So he applied for a job and he got in the mailroom very quickly, realized that they were, you know, a motion picture writer, director, I think mostly an actor's agency at the time talent agency. And, uh, and he wound up being the low man, and then he actually wound up getting onto Wasserman's desk. I was a messenger at MCA. This is Jay Cantor again. And then I became an assistant to, uh, an, a secretary to Lou Wasserman. And uh, he uh, treated me very well, and he was kind of my mentor and uh, would discuss various deals at the studios. Eventually, I used to drive him around when he would uh, call on different studio heads, and, uh, and then he finally said, well, better start earning your keep here. You're an agent now. Jay was a, a dear friend of my father's. I love Jay. He's very passionate about the work that he does, and he always dresses impeccably, and he's very soft-spoken and pretty much he probably knows where all the bodies are buried, and no one will ever know. Around 1950, Cantor began to make a name for himself when Marlon Brando took a liking to him. Jay became the Brando Whisperer, setting up his first Hollywood film, Fred Zinneman's The Men, and fielding calls every day from the emotional actor. Jay would become one of the most powerful guy-behind-the-guys in town. In 1951, even with Brando in his pocket, Jay was still building his career. At MCA, Lou Wasserman was king, and Cantor was several rungs below him, within a corporate culture that encouraged junior partners to serve their superiors. One of the senior agents at the agency, Jennings Lang, one day said, do you mind if I borrow your, the key to your apartment? And I said, uh, no, here. I asked Jay if Jennings had told him why he wanted to borrow the apartment. Yeah, I, I guess. I, I don't think he was borrowing it to take a nap. Jay had this apartment. So that is where Joan and my dad met on afternoons. Jennings was taking a big risk with these rendezvous. Certainly, not many MCA agents were having affairs with their clients, as Michael Gruskoff explains. Oh, no, no, it's, it, no, because most agents keep away from that because it's their meal ticket. And it's a dangerous thing, but Jennings Lang probably, you know, was a gambler and he got a big rush out of it. You, you don't, if you're representing a movie star and you don't want to have any flirtations, 
<laughs> that's a big gamble. If you, 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 it's like somebody, Jennifer Lawrence's agent, and something goes wrong, they lose somebody who's making $20 million a movie. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's a dangerous area, so you, you know. So you, you don't want to go tread that water. So why did Jennings tread such dangerous water? I asked Rocky Lang to tell me what he knew about how his father and my grandmother got together. I do know that he was her agent for a number of years. And from what I told, they had a very good working relationship. And at some point, they started to, ha- to see each other on the side. And as the story goes, from my point of view, and keep in mind, this was you know, way before I was born. But from what I understand is that um, my dad you know, really flipped for her. And, you know, and he, had a very, he had a bad marriage at home. Apparently, Joan had a bad marriage with Walter. One thing led to the other, and it wasn't just a one-time thing. They met many times. They traveled together, from what I'm told, a, a few times. And uh, they had this you know, full-on affair happening, and it was pretty intense. And from what I'm told is my, from my brother is that uh, my dad wanted to leave his marriage. I don't know if she thought it was anything more than a roll in the hay because her marriage was not great. I don't know what was in her mind. I don't know if she loved him. I don't know if she saw a future with him. I don't know any of that. I know that my, from what I can gather from my mom and my brother is that my dad really you know, had a thing for her. In those days in the 50s, it was hard to get divorced. Pam might have been miserable with my dad. She also might still have loved him, and she may have loved her family. Maybe Joan and Walter stayed together for their reasons. Clearly, neither were happy. To Vanessa, it's not so clear that Joan Bennett had an affair with Jennings Lang, because her marriage wasn't happy. Not all affairs happen because marriages are unhappy. I can't say whether Joan was or wasn't happy in her marriage. I can say the odds were in her favor that Jennings had a more traditional setup where he was out earning the money and his wife was home raising their sons and he was sleeping around with impunity and enjoying a double standard. You know, Walter did some of that too, but at the same time, he and Joan had a very progressive marriage. They shared a deep professional respect and creative partnership. Both were working and earning money, and both were parenting their children. So I think that shared intellectual companionship and humor and passion can act as a buffer in hard times. But Walter went through the most extreme rough patch imaginable. And his professional life was completely draining his confidence. I think it was hard on him that Joan was earning more than he was. And that made him feel somewhat worthless and emasculated. So I think in the case of Joan and Walter in the affair, Joan wasn't necessarily totally unhappy in her marriage. But she was struggling. And Walter was having the worst time ever. So she might have potentially been seeking more autonomy and control and someone who was appreciating her for her at a time when I think Walter was definitely neglecting her. I think the shooting resulted from the shame and humiliation he felt at his business failures. This is Walter's biographer, Matthew Bernstein. I mean, if you look at his overall life, he'd he'd lived a charmed life through the late 1940s. He made films with some of Hollywood's greatest directors and stars. And he'd been very public, speaking of the Academy, about leading the industry and boosting its reputation among the public and around the world, because there are always people ready to 
pounce on Hollywood and criticize it. And he made it a campaign, a personal campaign to show Hollywood in the best light. So he was a major public figure. And then he felt tremendous pressure, pressure of failure, of going from being the second highest paid member of the film industry in 1944 to someone who could not draw a salary or get a film made and from a promiscuous producer to a cuckolded husband. In our next two episodes, we will talk about the many, many factors that led Walter Wanger to shoot Jennings Lang. For now, while we're still talking about Jennings as a cog in the machine that was MCA, let's skip ahead a bit to talk about what happened after the shooting, how MCA hopped into action to protect their own, and how, after Jennings recovered from his wound, he and his agency steered the entire entertainment industry into new directions. Let's get one thing out of the way. Walter Wanger did not actually shoot either of Jennings Lang's balls off. We know that the bullet did not hit Jennings in the testicle, but in the upper thigh. And unfortunately, I think it hit an artery and there was a lot of blood because of that. But he did fully recover within a year and he went on to a second marriage and had a third son. And yet, within hours, an urban legend had spread throughout the company town. Van Johnson, a closeted mid-century leading man, wrote a catty note to his fellow 1940s star, Rosalind Russell. Did you know that Walter got one of his balls? Johnson wrote, Yep, right in the old cruller. From that point on, people began to repeat this embellished version of the story as fact, even when they knew it was more like a metaphorical truth. I think the rumor became that Jennings got his balls shot off because it's a much sexier, rougher, romantic, macho spin on the story. And it means that he got hit right in the place where he threatened Walter the most, the seat of his masculinity and his potency, so to speak. The shooting instantly became a huge scandal involving at least two MCA employees. And Lou Wasserman didn't like scandal. But to the surprise of many in the MCA inner circle, he didn't fire either of the agents involved. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, he used the enormous power of MCA to protect them. This is Michael Gruskoff again. Well, it's one of the most prominent agents in the industry at that time, and producer at that time, and movie star. And it's a very weird thing of somebody being shot in the balls, you know, and at a parking lot in Beverly Hills. And it was a scandal. And I always felt, if this is real L.A. confidential, the, the real confidential L.A. And Lou Wasserman being as smart as he was and loving Jay like he did, said, okay, this could be trouble. We'll take care of it. And... Let's move on, go to New York. Lou Wasserman said to me, listen, you, you, uh, you always wanted to go to New York, 
so uh, why don't you go? And the, the reason he said it was uh, he wanted to get me out of town so the district attorney couldn't interview me regarding my apartment and the connection with Jennings. And so I went to New York. I thought for a couple of weeks, and I ended up staying there for nine years. The plan worked. The Beverly Hills police didn't bother to track Jade down in New York. And when he returned to Los Angeles almost a decade later, they no longer cared. By that time, the whole thing had cooled off. In the fall of 1952, Pamela Lang, who had been dealing with an overactive thyroid, suffered a fatal heart attack. Just a few months after he had recovered from Walter's bullet, Jennings Lang was now left to raise his two young sons alone. And, you know, I guess if you wanted to look for the Hollywood Babylon angle, you could say, oh, my God, she was, you know, so affected by this affair that, you know, her stress level was so high and she had a heart attack. I don't buy into that. I buy into she had a heart attack and she died. It had been a bad year or so for Jennings Lang, but he recovered quickly in more ways than one. He met a singer named Monica Lewis and married her in 1956. And his career more than bounced back. I wonder if the shooting actually helped Jennings' career. Because once you're the guy who got his balls shot off and you live to tell the tale, and not only that, but then you married, sired more children, continued to have this reputation as a guy about town, then it becomes like you got a ball shot off, but the ball that's left is very large. I mean, it gave him special status and notoriety that worked in his favor because Jennings ultimately took over the studio where Walter had his great success and heyday at Universal in the 40s. Jennings became a bigwig in the 60s, and Jennings was at the largest agency the world has ever known, MCA, and they were known as the Octopus. And eventually they started taking over other industries like television, and Jennings was on the rise with that. As we've discussed, the entire structure of power in Hollywood began to shift in the late 1940s. The legacy movie studios had been dealt a major blow in 1948, when the Supreme Court forced them to sell their movie theaters in order to break up the vertically integrated monopoly that had been so key to Hollywood's unprecedented profits. Things really started to change in the years after the shooting. Over the course of the 1950s, the movie studios started to lose their grip on a culture increasingly drawn to rock and roll and television. By 1958, most studios were in financial disarray. But the problem was especially acute at Universal, the studio where Walter, Joan, and Fritz Lang had started their production company, and where Wanger had produced a number of hits that had kept the studio thriving through the 1940s. One company in late 50s Hollywood that was totally flush was MCA. They became experts at shuttling big stars of the past who had lost their big screen luster, such as Judy Garland, into lucrative TV deals. As for their clients from previous decades who were still in demand on the big screen, such as Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart, MCA struck innovative profit-sharing deals so that the stars would become more wealthy than actors ever had before, while the desperate studios bled cash just to get them. 
MCA had bought Paramount's film library and were raking it in on the TV rights to classic films starring still working names from the 30s like Grant and Marlena Dietrich. MCA's television production branch, Review, had more shows in production than they could find space to shoot. Universal's sound stages were virtually vacant, so MCA made a deal to lease them. Cheap. Eventually, at the end of 1958, Wasserman struck a deal to buy the entire Universal Studios lot. This allowed the agency to move even further into production. 1950s were evolving, as many decades are, both culturally, socially, and, and in the film business. There's a new crop of directors and producers coming in. The agencies were becoming incredibly powerful. In fact, the agencies were becoming so powerful that MCA became the target of an antitrust investigation. There has long been gossip that Robert Kennedy, attorney general during his brother's presidential administration, went after MCA because his girlfriend, Marilyn Monroe, was so unhappy with the agency's treatment of her. Actually, a federal trust prosecutor had been investigating MCA for two years by the time the Kennedys came into power. In any case, in June 1962, MCA was pressured into dividing their agency business from their film and TV production company. And my dad left the agency business at that point and became uh, an executive for Universal in the television department. And then when he went to Universal, he really built the Universal Television Department. After that, Jennings further pioneered the concept of movies made for TV with Columbo. Peter Falk had been reluctant to commit to a TV series, but Lang worked out a special scheduling block, which he called The Wheel. The network would air one Columbo movie each month, allowing Falk to work on other things in between shooting episodes, and on the other three weeks, the network would alternate between other series of specially produced movies. And then he transitioned into being a film producer. He gave Clint Eastwood his first directorial debut with Play Misty for me. He gave Steven Spielberg his first directorial job. My dad was, I think, uh, at his heart, in some ways, was like your grandfather in that he was attracted to more important material. But given the nature of where he was in his life, he had to turn a profit. And so most of his films were, you know, how can we... How can we make movies that make a lot of money? And so he balanced that, those movies with Earthquake and the airport movies with movies that didn't do as well. He wound up being the head of Universal Pictures. Mm -hmm. In other words, you want to make a movie, you want to, he'll, he'll give you a green light, which if you have the green light control in this town, you know, it's a very important job and plus, it was universal. They had a lot of money at the time. The irony, of course, is that in the 1940s, Walter Wanger had been one of the more lucrative producers for Universal. By the early 1960s, while Wanger was in Europe trying to save his biggest and last production, Jennings Lang was running the studio Wanger had called home. Walter had shot a man who he thought was trying to replace him in his bedroom. Just about a decade after the shooting, the guy who took the bullet had taken over Walter's former professional kingdom. In 1951, Jennings Lang could have died. Eleven years after that, he was the king. 
And, you know, living in Beverly Hills, a family, and, you know, playing tennis. He had a tennis court. (laughs) He had the whole thing, you know. There were three people involved in what happened in that parking lot in December 1951. Jennings Lang took the bullet, but his life and career continued otherwise unscathed, and he went on to have the greatest fortune of them all, becoming the head of a major studio. As we'll see, my grandfather mounted a major comeback... But it wouldn't last long. And my grandmother? We will discuss what happened to her in due time. But first, next time on Love is a Crime, we'll talk about all the forces conspiring against Walter Wanger, circa 1951, to push him to the brink. Love is a Crime is a Vanity Fair presentation in partnership with Cadence 13. Executive produced, created, written, and hosted by Vanessa Hope and Karina Longworth. Starring Griffin Dunn as Jennings Lang and Noah Segan as Jay Cantor. Our executive producer is Chris Corcoran, and our showrunner is Jacqueline Jamjum. Production support provided by Nico Steele, Julia Doyle, Tony Mantia, and Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Location sound by Caleb A. Mose, Hope Hall, and Alaric S. Campbell. Theme music composed by Lionel Cohen and Vibes. Audio produced and supervised by Shelby Comstock Britton and mixed by Gintis Norvilla and Rainhouse. Special thanks to Katie Rich from Vanity Fair, and Julie Shen and Kelly Bales from Condé Nast. Love is a Crime was written by Vanessa Hope and Karina Longworth, who consulted the following published sources in researching this episode. The Bennets, An Acting Family by Brian Kello, published by the University Press of Kentucky, used by permission from the University Press of Kentucky. Walter Wanger, Hollywood Independent by Matthew Bernstein, published by the University of Minnesota Press, used by permission from University of Minnesota Press. The Last Mogul, Lou Wasserman, MCA and the Hidden History of Hollywood, by Dennis McDougall, published by DeCapo Press. This episode includes interviews with Rocky Lang, Michael Gruskoff, Jay Cantor, and Matthew Bernstein. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard.